Let us join our hearts in prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, as we meditate upon the great passion of your Son, our Redeemer, we pray that you would bring us before your throne tonight in true penitence of our sins and comfort us again with the wonderful and marvelous grace that you have won for us through the blood shed on the cross for your dear Son. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enter our hearts and stir up true faith in us that we may find comfort, peace, and everlasting hope in the wounds of this Redeemer. We ask it all in his saving name. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed who have been purchased and bought back to God by the suffering, death, and resurrection of his only Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God's grace, his kindness, his compassion are yours to be found alone in this Savior. Amen. Our text for our meditation tonight is one of the penitential psalms. It is taken from Psalm 32, written by King David. We hear verses 1 through 5 in our Lord's name. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. These are your words, Heavenly Father. They are your truth. We pray that you would now increase our faith through them. Amen. You've probably heard the expression before, someone had a burning conscience. A burning conscience. That's an interesting, an interesting um, way of describing the human conscience. There was a study done by the National Library of Medicine a few years ago and I just want to read you a little bit of, from that report. It was a study done on consciences and the physiological effects of guilt. This is what they found. Data points were collected from 31 participants in this study using a thermal camera, a thermal camera in laboratory settings. It says there are thermal changes on the forehead, the eyes, the cheek, the nose, the tip of the mouth. We found a difference of between half a degree Celsius and a full degree Celsius change in temperature on the forehead, left and right cheeks and mouth regions during guilt experience. The findings have to do with the distribution of blood vessels on the face. That's fascinating. That when somebody feels guilty of something that they've done, even though they don't say anything or even though others aren't even aware of it, that there can be a rush of something that actually warms up your face, that actually heats up your face. And they think this is where the, the expression comes from, that someone can have a burning conscience. Isn't that interesting? We can, I know I'm really good at hiding my guilt from people and hiding my sins. And yet... Uh, you could actually measure it on someone's face, measure it on my face when I feel guilty. There are physiological things that actually happen to our bodies that they're just starting to learn how to measure 
uh, when it comes to consciences and how your conscience functions. It's really fascinating. King David writes in our psalm for tonight. He says, when I kept silent, meaning, meaning when I just held my sin inside of me, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning. Day and night, your hand, speaking to God, was heavy upon me. It's almost like God was pushing down on his chest. I don't know if you've ever had that experience when you look back on something you did really wrong. Maybe you're leaving lying down on your bed at night and you can just feel, almost feel like, wow, there's, this, there's, a, there's almost a pressure that can come sometimes that is a physiological response to all of this. When I was about four years old, I remember that some friends in our neighborhood talked me into coming with them and going to do something that was clearly very wrong. It was something I knew at age four was sinful and wrong and would upset my parents. Later that day, I was talking to one of my friends and told him what I had done, and he was kind enough to go tell my father for me. And that day when I came back home, I can still remember now today, 50-some years later, standing exactly where I was in the house, 60-some years later, Standing, standing where I was in the house, where the furniture was in the room, where my father was in the room, the tone of his voice, the look on his face, it still to this day penetrates to me. That's probably one of the earliest memories I have of getting a rush of guilt. Now, I'm sure I did things wrong before that, and I'm sure I felt guilty before, but that incident is still impressed on me uh, what it was like to stand in front of my human dad and to sense my guilt. Just think what it must be like in front of God. If, our, if my human dad can make me feel that way, what must it like, be like in front of God? So what's the earliest memory in your life of when you, when you felt your conscience really rise up on you? What's the earliest sin in your life that you can think of where that, where that took place and where you maybe had that sensation inside of you? Just last week, I was talking to a friend who I grew up with and went to school with as a child, and um, <clears throat> he started talking about a girl that was a year ahead of me in class, and just while he mentioned her name, I hadn't thought of her for years, I just started feeling guilty of all the mean things I said about her, and all the nasty stuff we did to people back then when we were little kids. And it's still in me, it's still in my memory, it's still in my conscience still comes back, and sometimes I think as we get older, we maybe reflect on it more and maybe feel guiltier about it now than I certainly did when I was a little kid. Martin Luther said this. He said, he, he talks about your conscience and the idea of regret like a little black dog. He says, the little black dog of regret, of a belated repentance, does not stop barking and biting the conscience, even though you know that your sins are forgiven. <laughs> so even as a Christian, when you know you're forgiven, even when you know what Christ has done for you, the conscience still can rise up and still bug us and still eat away at us and <laughs> make our faces hot. I think of King David who wrote the psalm in front of us. How often did he reflect back on his situation with Bathsheba? How often did, did that come to mind when he was going to bed at night? How often when his head hit the pillow did he start thinking about the man he killed and the, the woman he had slept with and taken, a, taken away from her husband? How often did he think about that marriage that he wrecked? 
he suddenly says here, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and my iniquity I have not hidden. What a word, hidden. As if we, as if we can hide anything from God, right? We like to think we can. We like to think we can stay away from God and everything. And, and we certainly can hide our sins from each other. I know I'm really good at that. But not from God. He says, I have not hidden my iniquity from God. Sometimes when I'm driving, especially down in northern Iowa, I don't know if you've ever seen this, there are certain farms, and, and maybe just out on the roadside, where somebody decides to build a little prayer chapel. You ever seen these where you're just driving along, there's just a tiny little prayer chapel. Imagine somebody that has two of those. Imagine you have two of those on the spiritual property in your heart, okay? The spiritual property of your heart. Imagine there are two little chapels, and one of them is kind of dilapidated and run down, and when you go inside of that chapel, the stained glass windows have images of, of things you've done wrong, even when you're a child. It has images in it of, of, of sins that you struggle with, okay? And when you open up the bulletin that's in that little chapel, it's just got a listing of all the things that have made you feel guilty through the years. And it's a, that's a tough chapel to be in. The other chapel, across the other way of the property in your spiritual farm, if you will, the other chapel is a beautiful little building, nicely decorated, well kept up, and inside of it, when you go in, are stained glass windows of some of the nice things you've done as a believer in Christ, some of the wonderful ways that you have obeyed God or supported his kingdom work. And when you open the bulletin, there's a list of the, the gifts and offerings that you've given to God and all the wonderful things that you've done for the church and to spread the gospel and things. And so on the property in your heart, there are these two different chapels. And we have a tendency to think that it's that more beautiful one, that that's where God wants me to come to him and worship him. But God says, I want you to always first go to the other one. I want you to stay in that dilapidated chapel, that it's a reminder of all the things you've done so that the cross, what our Savior has come to do for us, will glow all the brighter in your life. Now, knowing that, then go back to the other chapel. But that first chapel is where God wants you to know him and to stay there in that sense. To stay there in the sense that, that this is where you relate to him in the, in the way that he wants you to know him and come to him. And that is simply acknowledging your sin. Simply acknowledging the guilt that's in all of our consciences because when we do that, when we drop before him in humble repentance, that's when he rushes to us with his grace and mercy and forgiveness because of the work of Christ, which is what his whole passion history is all about. If you think about, if you think about the, the very supper that we just read about that Jesus sets up for his disciples and ultimately for his church, for you, okay? If you think about that holy supper, it was really designed and, and the preparation you're supposed to do ahead of it to take it properly is actually taking you into that little dilapidated chapel with all the stuff about your sin in it. Because that's where you're properly prepared to receive his marvelous grace and forgiveness that he puts in his very body and blood through his word into that bread and wine for you to come and to eat and to drink. So this is the little building where God wants you to know him primarily. If you think of David's life 
and this, this fall into sin that he did, God never approves of his sin. God never gives his blessing to that sin at all. And yet, by the work of the Holy Spirit through his word, he stirs his conscience. And probably the rest of his life, David reflected back on that, knowing he's forgiven and knowing that, knowing that he has a gracious and loving and forgiving God and knowing that he's going to heaven someday. You can tell that by his psalms. And yet, he always was aware of the fact that it had nothing to do with how good he was or anything he did, but it had everything to do with his Savior. God comes to us and says, this is the worship that I prefer. This is where I want you to be primarily to come and know me. It seems backwards. It seems like things we do for God should be the most important. But God says, no, I want you to focus more on what I do and have done for you. That's why Isaiah says this. God says to us through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one I esteem. That means I hold highly. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Jesus said at the beginning of his Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit, they recognize they don't, they, they shouldn't even be allowed to stand in God's presence, but by his grace they do, and they can. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So if you want to impress God, do it by acknowledging that you can never really impress him, <laughs> that he had to do it completely for you through the work of his son. There are other seats in that little chapel, that dilapidated chapel, and there are people already sitting in there, the thief on the cross, the woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. They're all in there, in King David. And God invites you to come in as well. I'm going to close with an illustration that um, I heard years ago when I was a child that always kind of stayed with me. And the pastor said, imagine that there is a mother who has two sons. And her one son is just a very upright citizen and, uh, and does everything right and has had a very successful life. The other, the other son has gone into trouble and just lived a life of difficulty and crime. And because of all the crimes has now been not just put into prison but is awaiting a death sentence and is on death row. And there's a particular day marked on the calendar for that son, that bad son if you will, to, to have to be executed. And it just so happens to fall on the same day that her other son is receiving an honor at a ceremony from the mayor of the city. So, knowing what's going on, and she knows that her one son who's about to be executed is crushed by how bad his life has been, which, where, where is the mother's heart that day? Which son... Uh, is the magnet pulling her heart the strongest? It's obviously the son who's in the trouble. If a sinful human mother can have that kind of mercy and compassion and tenderness, it had to come from somewhere. It comes from God. God is the one that creates that sort of mercy, even, even in that small way. Think how huge and enormous and merciful and compassionate our God must be 
that he looks at any sinner, no matter who it is, even murderers and adulterers, and he would love to have them in his kingdom. And he sent his son to pay for their sins. And by his grace, he pronounces them forgiven of all sin. So whatever, whatever has possibly been pricked in your conscience tonight, just like mine has been, as I told you about, whatever past things have been pricked in your conscience tonight, I want to make sure you leave here tonight knowing that there is no sin that you could create and come up with that is bigger and greater than the forgiveness and the grace of your Savior. You cannot outsin God's forgiveness and his grace. Be assured of that and know that. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You are blessed in this Savior's grace. Amen.